As a kid, Homer Hickam would look up at the moon and stars above and dream about his future. He wanted to send rockets to space and explore the edges of the universe. Little did he know he would go on to become a well-known NASA engineer, help train astronauts, and design those same rockets. Now Hickam grew up in McDowell County, Colwood, West Virginia to be exact, a place where he either worked in the mines or at the company store, or maybe both. So as you can imagine, the odds of becoming a successful rocket engineer were against him. But that was the fuel he needed to ignite his inner fire and ultimately become an inspiration for generations to follow. In this episode, we chat with Homer on his wild journey from West Virginia to Vietnam to Huntsville, Alabama, where he helped engineer history. We also talk about his current position on the National Space Council, which is overseen by Vice President Mike Pence and the President Donald Trump. He also shares his gripping thoughts on why researchers should be more focused on the moon and not so much Mars, something that you don't hear very often. Yeah, he says we should mine the moon almost like West Virginians do coal. But there's no question he wants to push the boundary of space research. So when the next generation of young space enthusiasts look up at the moon and stars, they too dream of the infinite possibilities the world above can provide. Mace, hit the music. does not always shine in West Virginia, but the people always do. Hey everybody, welcome into another edition of the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Another special guest, we say that every week, but certainly there's no question about this guy. Vietnam vet, he was a NASA engineer, a New York Times best-selling author, an avid paleontologist and all of those dreams of becoming all of those things started in McDowell County. Good morning, Homer Hickam. How are you? Hey, good morning, guys. How are you? Uh, doing well. Yeah, doing Great. really well. Very well. Um, How's life in West Virginia? <laughs> it's treating me well. Yeah, it's treating everybody well. It did me too. Part. It's a great state. Great yeah. People. Sure well, let's kind of let, let's start with that too, because Rocket okay. Boys was the book. And yeah. I think everybody at some point in their education uh, career in West Virginia, had to read the book, watch the film, you know, but how much do you value your upbringing from West Virginia? Obviously that was kind of what, you know, the book is something that you were recognized you wrote later in life. Well, after your time, um, you know, in in Vietnam, but uh, you know, how much do you value your upbringing in West Virginia and how much did that really make you who you are today? Yeah, well, everything I am today is because of where I grew up, um, my parents and uh, the people of uh, that little mining town, Colwood, West Virginia. Um, they gave me uh, the values uh, that I have, at least in terms of hard work. Um, so I've never really shied from, uh, from working because I grew up in a place where if you weren't working all the time, there was something really, really, really wrong with you. <laughs> so... Uh, so, uh, yeah, Colwood was a great place, really, to grow up. Um, I know in the movie they made it look uh, not, not so wonderful. Uh, I try to, you know, correct that a little bit with uh, 
with the with the book um, because uh, people who grow up in coal camps they generally um, you know it's said oh it's that if you were a success it's not because of where you grew up but because you got out of there and I think in some cases that that's true but um, but for me um, Colwood was uh, was a place that I missed when I left uh, a lot and um, uh, of course uh, uh, that was my boyhood and uh, and I was nurtured uh, to a great extent by my teachers and um, and by the people there <clears throat> as they did all the kids really uh, trying to to make sure that we had a chance because um, it was well recognized that Colwood was in decline even in the late 1950s and uh, it probably all the jobs in the mines probably weren't going to be around for the rest of us. So people had that in mind when they tried to give us a good education. Well, I think it's just so fascinating too, because that part of the state at that time, I mean, McDowell County at one point had over 100,000 people, right? I mean, yeah. McDowell County was the largest county in the state. Yeah, it, it was uh, so much different when I go in there now. Um, Welch, which was a county seat, uh, mm -hmm. was called Little New York. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, on, uh, on Saturday nights, um, we'd go over. There were two movie theaters, uh, Pocahontas and the Temple. Uh, we favored Pocahontas because they showed uh, uh, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and uh, <laughs> Red Rider <laughs> movies. And uh, my parents, without a, any thought, and try this today, I mean, you know, we were just, just, the grade school kids would just drop us off at the Pocahontas and we'd go in there and sit there and uh, until our parents came back after us. But uh, the crowds on the streets were uh, just amazing. Uh, miners would still have their uh, helmets on and uh, the status symbol was a white helmet because that meant you were a foreman. Mm. Uh, and it was, all, it was, you know, I, I was just fascinated by, by it. Even back then, I was just like, you know, this uh, people were just talking and and having a good time and it, it was a very very interesting place um, and uh, so yeah it uh, it certainly has changed uh, today and, and Homer when you so you grew up and you said you, your parents were and then you had school were they your parents key figures in your life as far as like inspiring you to be curious like did when you you know CJ listed you're a veteran an engineer a scuba diver a paleontologist like did you have these dreams from a very early age of all these things or what do you feel like were you like nature versus nurtured were you exposed to complex new ideas growing up in West Virginia in the coal camps well like like most kids um, our dads uh, were off to the coal mines um, you know and um, and then when they were back home they they were really tired so Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and and so interaction with our with our dads uh, were limited to mostly the weekends because otherwise they were either in the mine or, or trying to get some sleep and right. so it was the moms that kind of took over and my mom's uh, contribution to 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 me was get out of the house <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so um, so we played a, a lot you know we made up all kinds of games we were up in the mountains all the time and uh, cowboys and indians and everything else you know up there and um my 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 older brother jim one time uh we were playing cowboys and indians and he tied me to a tree and left me <laughs> way up in the mountains <laughs> and nobody knew it until supper time when my mom required my dad to come back from the mine and sit at the at the at the kitchen table to at least have supper uh, with us, and then 
so they're sitting there and there's Jim and, uh, and I'm not there. And finally, the mom asked my brother, have you seen Sonny as they call me? And he went, oh yeah. <laughs> and he had to come up and, and untie me and bring me home. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that taught you some early survival skills. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I was very patient, as I recall. I just kind of hung out there and watched the squirrels and the chipmunks. You know? yeah. One thing, I was, I was very nearsighted. It wasn't until I was in the fourth grade that they realized that I actually couldn't see. I had 2,400 oh, wow. vision in both eyes. And um, they all thought, thought I was trying to be the teacher's pet by sitting up front. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't know. see. The whole world was a blur. I thought everybody, that was what everybody <laughs> saw. And people would say, look over there. And, that, and I'd go, oh, yeah. And I didn't see anything. And uh, then in the fourth grade, uh, for some reason, the doctor, the company doctor came up and put up an eye chart. And uh, I thought about memorizing it because I was back in the line. But when it got to my, my time, they said, well, I said, I can't see it. And they said, well, walk up till you do. And I walked up to about uh, a yard in front of it and then leaned over and pronounced <laughs> the very top letter E. And my mom, who was there, like most of the moms, she just burst into tears. I didn't realize how, you know, that I couldn't see. So that, that changed a lot of things when I got my glasses and I could actually, you know, see other people. World <laughs> yeah. change. Yeah, that's, that's a fair, um, fair there. Um, now look, so you, you grew up in West Virginia and then you, you go to high school in West Virginia and then do you get drafted to Vietnam in, in the mid sixties or? No, what happened was, um, I went to Big Creek High School, which unfortunately no longer exists. It used to be a big football powerhouse. The consolidation of high schools in West Virginia. Add yeah. Big Creek to the list. Big Creek. Yeah. Absolutely. Big Creek was amazing. I mean, it really wasn't a, uh, a football powerhouse. My brother uh, played uh, played there, of course. And then um, I went uh, after a Big Creek. Then the, while I was at Big Creek, that was the Rocket Boys era. That was the three mm -hmm. years that we built our Rockets. It just happened to, well, we, uh, it was uh, sophomore, junior year, and senior year at Big Creek. Before that, it was at the Colwood School. But uh, so those were the three years of the Rocket Boys. And then uh, I went off from there to Virginia Tech. A lot of people ask me, well, why didn't you go to West Virginia University? I'm like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> go, well, you got to realize the geography of the day. Uh, in the first place, my brother, who um, was recruited heavily by WVU, um, I, I think the coach's name was Pappy Lewis, and uh, he, was, uh, he recruited Jim, and Jim was going there. But before he – that summer, that coach uh, retired – and that irritated my brother so much, he decided to go to Virginia Tech instead because they had heavily recruited him as well. Um, and, and that was actually much easier for us to go to. It was only 100 miles from Colwood. Uh, it only took three or four hours hitchhiking to get there. And where WVU required an overnight, you had to overnight uh, uh, halfway up there because there was, you know, the interstates didn't exist or the uh, turnpike or all that. It was, it was still a building, let's put it that way. So you couldn't quite get up there. WVU is like, why is this university in Pennsylvania? That's what it seemed to us. It was so far away. <laughs> so, and Virginia Tech, of course, had a great engineering school. I didn't apply, apply there. My mother did it for me. Wow. And because yeah. uh, I kept, putting it off. And so she, she said, you're going to Virginia Tech. They got a good engineering school to so go down there. But anyway, out of Virginia, Virginia Tech's a military college at that time. And mm -hmm. I took Air Force ROTC, but I didn't get a commission. Uh, they, um, 
uh, again, my eyes kept me from getting a commission out of there. So I ended up going to Army OCS. And um, they shipped me off to Dugway Proving Ground, Utah for the first year as a lieutenant. And um, while I was there, I took night classes at Brigham Young University so I could meet the Mormon girls. And just to give you an idea of how tough, how tough Virginia Tech was, I thought BYU was a party school. I really knew <laughs> but, um, but from there, uh, I was shipped off to uh, Vietnam, uh, the 4th Infantry Division, and it was good for me uh, uh, to, to to really see what was going on. That was part of mm -hmm. history that was going on at that time. And uh, it didn't take me too long to understand that uh, this was not a good place to be. But, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I made it through the year and um, tried to keep all of my guys safe and, uh, and, and got to see the Tet Offensive, the 68 Tet Offensive up close. <laughs> Very I was gonna say, I was gonna say you were there in 1968, right? So you were yeah. there before the Tet or after? Yeah, I was there during Tet. We were out on the Cambodia border, uh, a little place called the Oasis, and um, and uh, it was uh, it was supposed to be a holiday. I mean, it was a crazy war. Uh, we they made an agreement with the North Vietnamese and the the Viet Cong that we would take Tet off the, mm -hmm. from the war, and uh, the NVA said, "I don't think so." And so um, they, uh, I mean, we woke up that morning. They were they were they were coming. <laughs> they were you could see them. They were coming right at us. And uh, um, the only thing that saved us that day was uh, a sortie of F one hundreds that uh, came roaring in, and and uh, the NVA scattered at that point. But uh, it was a rough day. Needless to say, it was actually a rough month after that. So. Cool camp wasn't so bad, huh? <laughs> Not so bad. No, no. Um, so. You spend time in Vietnam, you come back and kind of pick up from there. Where, where did you go? Cause um, you know, that's when you, you started uh, doing some of uh, your childhood activities, right? Some of those childhood dreams started coming to life. Well, not quite. Uh, I didn't actually start working for NASA until I was 38 years old, which, yeah. um, which shows you that I was a little bit tenacious about the whole thing. <laughs> so when I came back from uh, Vietnam, um, I actually uh, uh, stayed in the army um, and ended up down in Puerto Rico as a reserve advisor and, um, and became a scuba diver and a scuba instructor. And um, so uh, then I started working for the Army. Uh, I came back and worked for the Army Missile Command here in Huntsville and also as a scuba instructor and, uh, and just went around the world as, a, as a, a scuba diver and started exploring the wrecks off of North Carolina. I started writing at that point. Um, freelance writing um, and and what I found was a really good subject was writing about shipwrecks uh, diving on the shipwrecks and uh, all of a sudden I was starting to get published which was really cool and then I started uh, I heard about uh, that there was a uh, submarine wreck off North Carolina it turned out to be a U-boat U-352 uh, so I started uh, leading um, Kind of expeditions up there to dive on it started researching all of this this information on uh, a book that later became known as torpedo junction which was my first book and um, and i actually uh, took a, a job over in germany for three years with the army uh, so that i could uh, in the back of my mind was so that i could uh, interview uh, german u-boat crews and i did 
So ultimately that led uh, to Torpedo Junction. But out of Germany, I got the job with NASA. Um, I came here in 1981, uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, and, um, and I guess the rest is kind of history. Wow. That's really interesting, too, because, I mean, you just kind of picked up writing. Was that something that you'd wanted to do in Vietnam? I mean, when you were overseas, did you write on the side? Did you keep a journal, you know, or was this something, ah, pick up a pen and pad and, and just start <laughs> just start going? Well, I always, uh, I always liked to write. When I was in third grade, I remember writing short stories. And my, mm-hmm. my uh, teacher, Mrs. Laird, said, "Why, well, Sonny, I think you can make your living as a writer. And I thought to myself, why wait? I could use the money now. So, uh, <laughs> so um, I actually started a little newspaper there in Colwood. Roy Lee Cook was my ace reporter. He later became one of the Rocket Boys. Uh, so I always had in mind that I could do that. I wrote for the uh, college newspaper in, at Virginia Tech. I had my own column there. So I had done some. And, um, and so, yeah, it was just something that I, I really liked to do. And, um, and, and once I found a, a topic that I could uh, interest these magazines, like American History Illustrated and so on, uh, with the U-boats, then I had something that I could write about. And uh, so I had under my belt um, quite a bit of experience uh, with writing before I started writing Torpedo Junction. Mm -hmm. uh, By the way, um, at the same time I was writing Torpedo Junction, this this, uh, insurance adjuster up in Maryland also wanted to write a book about submarines. And he read some of my stuff and and called me and um, and wanted to talk about submarines and pretty soon I figured out he was just, he was just trying to get free information without doing the research himself. So I kind of blew him off. Um, and then later he came out with his own book. It was called uh, the hunt for red October. His name was Tom Clancy. And oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've got the uh, first edition of <laughs> for Red October with Tom Clancy's note in it about, about this. And I'm going, if you want to know when I, when I die, uh, if you don't know otherwise, uh, just check eBay every so often. And if you see that first edition come up on eBay, it's because I'm dead. And my wife got it. <laughs> yeah, she's got it out there for sale. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's, that's funny. Incredible, yeah. So, and he probably wrote you a letter thanking you for all of your contributions. <laughs> no, he was kind of bragging. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, we, we had the same first publisher. It was uh, Naval Institute Press. So okay, uh, yeah. 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 And then we had the same problem sort of later on um, that uh, uh, the. Naval Institute Press had basically, uh, in the contract like they do for a lot of first authors, uh, had claimed all the rights uh, to the to the movies and everything else. And they they did the same thing for Torpedo Junction. And I didn't know that until many, many years later when it got optioned for a movie, it never been made. Many mm-hmm. books are optioned, but hardly any of them are ever made. Yeah, but anyway, right. I look, went back and looked at that contract and I thought, oh, that's why Tom is complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so Humbert, so you keep writing more books and like you've got, you know, it looks like dozens of books, looks like throughout the late 90s and early 2000s. And then, and then it looks like you're, you return back to more space related activities. And, you know, fast forward to, are you on what looks like the Space Council now and you were nominated by uh, Vice President Mike Pence? 
Yeah, uh, Mike um, asked me to be on this advisory board for the National Space Council. Mm -hmm. And uh, I agreed to that, um, mainly because he wants us to go back to the moon. I'm a big moon guy. I'm not a Mars guy. Okay. The heck with Mars. I don't care anything about Mars. It's too far away. And stupid <laughs> anyway. So <laughs> just let the robots take care of Mars. Sure. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, the president keeps saying we're going to Mars. So I guess we're going to Mars. But, um, but uh, I'm really a moon guy. And I've written a number of books set on the moon. Um, mm -hmm. Back to the Moon was, uh, was the book that uh, was published after Rocket Boys. It was immediately mm -hmm. after Rocket Boys. And it turns out that uh, several people... Uh, that, is, that, that has caused uh, several people to think about going back to the moon. One of them was Mike Pence. He read it mm -hmm. back in 1999 and it stuck with me. And uh, so when, once he got to be vice president, he fired up the National Space Council and, um, and asked me to, uh, to be on the advisory board. And then another guy that was impressed by Back to the Moon was... Um, uh, a, a, a young guy who just, he's struggling, but he's doing the best, best he can. His name is Jeff Bezos. You might hear <laughs> And <laughs> so, so he created Blue Origin, mm -hmm. uh, his, his rocket company, um, uh, because of Back to the Moon and also the movie. He loved the movie. I met Jeff years ago at the at, um, New York uh, Book Fair. Wow. And, uh, you know, like I typically do, it's like, who are you? You know, and so it's like, <laughs> I'm Clancy. Yeah, yeah. We're... <laughs> yeah, so I was talking to him. But then I remembered, uh, then somebody came over and said, he's he's the CEO of Amazon. I go, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, he's, okay. <laughs> he might be okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, Blue Origin's the company that's uh, coming up right behind SpaceX. So mm -hmm. what we'll see, I think, is a space race between SpaceX and uh Blue Origin, so yeah, it's, uh, all over. You, you can forget uh, the United States versus China versus Russia. Man. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be these two companies. They're the ones going to take over the universe. You <laughs> seem to keep finding yourself in the middle of these space races, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I'm the Forrest Gump here. <laughs> 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 yeah. Hey guys, Cooper here. Quick reminder that if you know someone that you think will be a good guest on the podcast, send us an email. The email address is mountaineermediapodcast at gmail.com. And if you can, give us a rating if you enjoy our show. Now let's get back to the conversation with Homer Hickam. Why did we, we went to the moon, you know, in the 60s. I'm sure that was just like, I mean, I can't even fathom what that would be like for the first time ever. And then the U.S., you know, we backed off and we kind of like lost our way with like space exploration. Why do you think that was? And what do you think it means is, I mean, the science aspect of it, but even just for like young kids, like you said, like to be inspired that you can do, like if we were to go back, that might inspire a new generation of scientists and students and kids to take on whatever it may be. How important is both like the scientific aspect of it, but also just because we can and it's human and it's a challenge and, you know, it's a, an amazing feat. Yeah, I mean, we have unfinished business on the moon. There's no question about it. Uh, what happened with Apollo was a couple of things um, back in the 60s and, 
and I heard all this uh, when I came to work for NASA in the eighties, then there was still a lot of those guys, the old Apollo guys were still around shuffling mm -hmm. up and down the halls, you know, making coffee for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> I'm sure that's what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, the way they explained it to me, the reason we stopped going back to the moon first was Apollo 13, which just mm -hmm. scared everybody to death and uh, that we were going to lose a crew because the whole thing, the whole, the whole way that we were going to the moon, uh, it was successful, but it was always just on the edge of failure. There was just, there was no room for any kind of, uh, of slack there. And so after Apollo 13, uh, NASA kind of lost their, their heart about doing it. And they were happy to not to say, we did it. We we did exactly what you wanted us to do, starting with JFK. And, um, and now we ought to go do something else. And then the idea of the shuttle came around and that was, uh, and also people were, were complaining about how much NASA was costing and the Saturn fives and all this kind of stuff. I mean, stupid stuff that, that people do not seeing that, uh, Hey, here was a great potential. This was a, we basically got a little planet that uh, orbits around us. It's a very interesting little planet. Got a lot of resources on it, but we stopped going and uh, started building the shuttle. The idea that the shuttle would uh, be very cheap to fly, and of course that never happened. It ended up being about a billion dollars per flight, and it was a dangerous vehicle, uh, also. Mm -hmm. And um, but we did some wonderful, wonderful, marvelous things with the shuttle, the Hubble Space Telescope, going up there and fixing the Hubble Space Telescope, the Space Lab, which is what I cut my teeth on. That's that was. Um, a, a, a laboratory that went in the shuttle cargo bay and we had to train the crews for that and so I ended up being a, a crew trainer that to me as a scuba instructor it was a natural transition for me to go over and start training the astronauts and I worked in the neutral buoyancy simulator it was like 40 feet deep uh, 75 feet across tank I worked inside the suit so I knew a lot of things about about how to do extra vehicular activity so um, started being on teams that trained the astronauts to go up and, and do things in EVA. Um, and so uh, it was, uh, uh, yeah, we did kind of lose our way. And I kept, in 1993, I convinced NASA to let me write a book about, uh, or a manual on how to go back to the moon. And um, it was pretty amazing because they pretty much gave you a dunce cap back then if you said, well, we need to go back to the moon because the shuttle was it. The shuttle, 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 shuttle. Right. And uh, yet I did. Uh, they did let me do it. And uh, so that manual is, uh, is, uh, is available. And <laughs> it has been looked at since <laughs> on how to do it. And uh, so I'm kind of proud of that, that I was kind of ahead of the curve. But it wasn't until Mike Pence got in that um, anybody started really seriously talking about going back to the moon. The mm -hmm. moon is just loaded with resources. And uh, it, um, I, what I want to see, it, to me, I, I, I testified in front of Ted Cruz's uh, Senate uh, committee. Uh, I forget exactly what it's called, science or something. But um, last summer and testified, what, what do I really want to see? Uh, I want to see coal wood on the moon. I want to see a mining town on the moon. That's what I want to see. That's, you know, uh, and again, I told him, I don't care anything about Mars. Send the robots to Mars. There's plenty of, you know, we can find out anything about Mars if we want to without sending people, poor people to go there. It takes forever, a year to get there, a year to get back. 
come back mm-hmm. half dead, but uh, or maybe fully dead. We don't know. But in the <laughs> it's right there. It's right yeah. there. And uh, let's go up and and mind the blame thing. You know, let's just go up and uh, there is a lot of resources that we can use. Uh, heavy metals up there beneath every crater is an asteroid. They were talking about going out to the asteroid belt to mine it. And it's like, why go out there? It's right there on the moon. Just dig up under there. I mean, I'm West Virginia boy. I'm used to that. You know, <laughs> pick yeah. a shovel, whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. Just see what's underneath uh, every crater. You might be surprised. So we'll see. We Gosh, <laughs> that's crazy because like you said, it, a lot of those, the conversations in the space community now, okay, how can we capture and harness the power of the sun how can we you know capture the the resources that uh you know meteorites and and asteroids have you know but it sounds like you know you're all about going back to the moon and and really doubling down on on what what we've been to and and what we kind of already have in our backyard yeah yeah i've often said that um these people that want to want to go skip the moon and go straight to mars it was like after columbus the spaniards decided well, let's just take these ships and go to Antarctica and skip North America entirely. You know? <laughs> so to me, uh, to me, Columbia, or, or uh, the moon is our North America for uh, uh, back in the 15th century, 16th mm-hmm. century. So um, we, there, there are great resources. And, and so we do need to, um, to go back there and stake out a claim, build a base um, and, um, and just start living up there. I mean, I think it'd be great if, if, you know, if, if, if young people could look up and actually uh, look at the moon, can't look at Mars, looks like a little pink star, but you can look at the moon and, um, and, and think to themselves, wow, there's people living there. And I want to be like, I want to, you know, go join them. I want to go do that. It, it's mm-hmm. like, a, it'd be like Maybe a great nice. yeah. advertisement every night about, about learning to be better and getting educated and, going up there and, and uh, doing some, some important stuff. So yeah, yeah inspirational. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Here, let me ask this cause it sounds like this, you, you have some backing now, this, um, the national space council wasn't around all that long ago. It was, it started in, in the eighties, right. And then shut down in the nineties. Yeah. It shut down and, and Mike, uh, Mike Pence brought it back. So uh, well, it sounds like there are groups behind you saying, okay, maybe this is the way that we can do things. Maybe you have a little backing. <laughs> yeah. I think we got a lot of backing yeah. uh, <laughs> in the white house. Isn't so, uh, yeah, out yeah. <laughs> you know, president Trump is, uh, I love him. Uh, but <laughs> uh, he doesn't know a whole lot about space. So, I mean, naturally, like most people, they start thinking oh, Mars. We've already been to the moon. Let's go to Mars. And, you know, President Trump's the same way. And it sounds good. Um, and so every time he says it, I go, oh, please. And um, but that's OK. If, if we if honestly, there's nothing in the pipeline to send astronauts to Mars. So it's fine uh, and to say it because uh, that means funding actually to go back to the moon. So mm-hmm. you know, I, uh, uh, I'm okay with the president saying that. So, it's right. <laughs> so you're, you're knowledgeable about the space, you're trained astronauts. You, so you're, you're ambitious about the future. You're looking towards, you know, outer space. You're also interested in looking backwards with dinosaurs and fossils. How did that 
amongst all the other things that you get, how did that kind of come into play? And what, what have you learned since then? Do you go out and try to find them yourself? And, and what's, what's that whole world like? And let me tell this story, because when we tried to book you the first time, your agent, Burke Allen, who's connected the dots with us a few times, you guys were actually on a trip and were unable to do an interview at the time because you were, uh, you know, you were doing some work. Yeah, uh, I took Burke along. I wasn't going to let him go down in those drainages. I wasn't sure he could crawl and crawl out, but uh, yeah, I took him along. Uh, how that happened was that um, the director of Jurassic Park 3, Joe Johnston, was the director for October Sky. So um, I was at Joe's house while he was researching um, for the movie, and he had with him a little box that was that had some... Uh, just looked like little yellow rocks. And he said, well, these are dinosaur bones, Homer. I, I've been out to Montana and I picked these up. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I was out in the field with this guy called uh, Dr. Horner and uh, uh, Jack Horner. And, uh, and I go, when you, when you next go out, can, can, can I go with you? You know, it's just like, that's interesting. Can I, you know, in Colwood, we had fossils. Um, we go to the old slack dumps and uh, there would be uh, these uh, plant fossils and uh, they were just fun. And we crack open those, oh, that old coal and, and see these uh, ferns and everything else. Of course, that was the Carboniferous area, that era that yeah. was way yeah. before the dinosaurs, but I didn't know that. I always was thought maybe I could find a dinosaur bone even back yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, anyway, so um, uh, Joe said, no, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Homer, you can't go. <laughs> so I went anyway, and uh, uh, Dr. Horner and I were a simpatico, and uh, he let me come out uh, 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 every summer for like the next 12 years. I'd go out every summer and be at his camp and uh, and then just go out on my own and start looking for dinosaurs. And lo and behold, I was pretty good at it because, I'm a, again, I'm a West Virginia boy. I can tell the difference between a rock and a bone. Honest to gosh, you'd be surprised the people that can't. So, <laughs> so, um, and then um, uh, ultimately kind of spun off to have my own team. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've been going out now for 20 years and found a total of six uh, T-Rexes. Oh my gosh. 40 ever found. So we have a pretty good percentage. Uh, Holy cow. So do you get so, to name them? How does that work? Well, no, um, uh, but one of them's called the H-Rex because it's kind of famous. They named it, mm -hmm. you know, kind of sort of after me. I've got number H's in my name. <laughs> um, so uh, it was a juvenile T-Rex, which are very rare. And uh, they are still slicing it up. I would, uh, when Burke and I were out in Montana, I went out for a fundraising for the Museum of the Rockies, which is where Dr. Horner uh, was the curator. And, um, and so they took me down in their, their deep lab there it is deep. It is deep. It's way underground. And um, they had the H-Rex there and they were slicing that puppy up. And uh, that's what they're doing now. They're looking inside the bones rather than the outside of the bones. And I was kind of kind of happy that uh, that it was being able to be used for uh, for science. And then uh, the, the others, you know, we, we turn over everything that we find to uh, the uh, professional paleontologists. Uh, Either you know now the University of Washington. I'm working with Dr. Greg Wilson uh, under his permit. You got to have a permit. You can't just go out and pick these things up. They put you in jail. Okay. 
find out. Wow. Um, so, uh, <laughs> well, CJ, so, never mind. I said we were going to head out yeah, yeah, next we week. To do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, um, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of poachers out there. It's a very empty. Uh, I love this place, fellas. You need to go out there. It's called Garfield County. It's up in the northeast part of Montana. It's the size of Connecticut. Mm. And Connecticut, I think, has got like two and a half, three million people in it. Garfield County has 800 people. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. And about a million cows. So, uh, so uh, this is where we hunt these dinosaurs. It's uh, down in these very deep uh, drainages. They're beautiful, beautiful coolies. Uh, buttes and all this kind of stuff and you can look at them and you can see the layers of time and there's a certain layer it's where the KT boundary what they call the KT boundary is and below which you find the dinosaurs and above which you don't find any dinosaurs so um, you got to be able to recognize where that boundary is and we I think we find so much uh, my little team which consists of one other person Frank Stewart who lives in Bozeman um, uh, we find a lot because we're ignorant, and we are <laughs> unlike <laughs> right the paleontologists who look at it and go, nah, there's nothing there, and they walk on. It's like we look at it and go, I don't know if there's anything there or not, and we crawl up on these ledges, and we find stuff. You know? I was going to say, how much is it like just straight up like looking, and how much is it like technology, <laughs> like, you know, like oh, light or It's just looking. Uh, there's just no taking a guess. <laughs> you strap on a backpack. It's like um, 100 degrees out there during the during the summer, which is the main time to go out because uh, for a lot of reasons. One thing that's when the grad students are out there. People ask me, "Oh, Homer, are you going out on the dig?" And I go, "I don't dig. That's why God made grad students. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just go out and look." And, Supervise. <laughs> yeah, and even you know, very, what we say that some days the, you ride the dinosaur, and some days the dinosaur rides you. We we spend a lot of time looking and not finding anything sometimes and uh, so you come back just exhausted but you spent the whole day out there in that wonderful country and uh, mm. to me that's just uh, that's worth it and well we always find something we'll find a 2,000 year old buffalo or something out there yeah it's only 2,000 years old who cares yeah, uh, yeah that's uh, nothing. if it's not 65 million nah, we don't care we don't care about that so <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, so when you think back to your time in West Virginia and you, you do all these cool things, you meet all these people, how often does it get brought up and it, had you, have you ever felt like you had to prove people wrong about West Virginia or is it more of a like, look, this is where I came from. This is who I am. And I've embodied that throughout my career or like when it comes up in conversation, what, what normally happens with you when you talk about West Virginia? Oh, actually, um, I, I think that um, the state comes off really, really well. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say I'm from West Virginia, and uh, and uh, people, of course, they have they have this uh, this belief that uh, West people in West Virginia are all starving and and uh, don't have shoes and that other otherwise, right? <laughs> reputation's intact. I have to say that uh, that the um, probably the worst harassment I ever got about being from West Virginia was at Virginia Tech my freshman year. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Like, That's about why right. are you here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're a stupid hillbilly blah blah you know it's like but you know I made friends and pretty soon it was okay uh, and I had a couple other West Virginians there as well and my brother was there and he big enough to beat everybody up so. <laughs> Defend you. He didn't tell you to a tree no, Honestly, there, uh, honestly um, uh, people are curious about West Virginia 
Mm-hmm. And um, they, I think they have a sense of the West Virginians uh, that we are invariably friendly people mm-hmm. and um, that maybe we are, uh, maybe we need uh, a little assistance sometimes. <laughs> I, I, so that's fine if anybody wants to help me because I'm from West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> but then we always prove that, that we're a lot smarter than they think, you know, yeah. because I, I can't... Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember where it was, but it was for us, from some company that I went off to make a speech and we were in the boardroom and, and somebody went on and on about, uh, uh, about how it was just amazing that I was who I was because I was from this ignorant backward state of West Virginia. And, and uh, somebody asked me what I thought about that. And I said, I don't know. Why don't you ask your CEO? He's from West Virginia, too. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's awesome. It's true. I mean, in, in West Virginia, like you're right. I mean, West Virginians know that, like, about ourselves. I think oftentimes it's, uh, you know, you'll have some folks that, like, assume some stuff or, like, the joke. But, you know, the hardworking people, the most compassionate people, the most friendly people, I mean, I feel come from West Virginia. I mean, maybe I'm biased. Um, but it, it's true. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that from you. I'm glad you, you wear it as a badge of honor when you're out oh, and about in the world. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm down here in Huntsville. I like, don't get me wrong. I love Huntsville, Alabama. I love this, this, uh, this area, the state, the Tennessee Valley. It reminds me a lot of West Virginia. We're actually in the mountains here and it is a beautiful, beautiful, uh, area. But if there was a Huntsville, Alabama, and West Virginia, I'd live there. <laughs> <Be there. Yeah. laughs> but, uh, but it brought me here. You know, my work brought me here. And uh, so it, it's where I live. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm forever going to be uh, uh, a West Virginian. That's just who I am. And, uh, you know, that, that cannon that they, uh, uh, the skipper down at Virginia Tech that mm-hmm. I built while I was down there. Now, they're using the skipper two now. The skipper one that I built was um, is in the in the, their museum down there. And uh, um, but um, that actually contained uh, brass from my dad's coal mine. He, he, oh my gosh! We were trying to raise brass uh, enough brass from our belt buckles and breastplates and all that kind of thing um, to build this cannon with. We couldn't, we couldn't do it. So my dad uh, loaded up his Buick and with the old brass scrap from the coal mine and, and brought it down to Blacksburg and dropped it off for me. And, uh, and he said something to the, to the effect that, uh, you know, uh, th- there is, uh, there's coal wood in, in this uh, cannon, this Virginia Tech cannon, sign. There's coal wood in this. Yeah. So I guess there, there is. <laughs> yeah. Well, Skipper's a cannon that they use, right? The cadets use and fire off, you know, at Virginia Tech football games, and you know they have just around campus. So that's that's really cool that it was actually a West Virginia boy that came up with that idea. It was a West so. <laughs> Virginia boy who uh, who almost got kicked out of school and plucked out of school building. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. That's funny. Well, I know in, in, you know, West Virginia, there's a rocket day, a rocket boys day. And, and up until last year, I believe there was a week, right? There was a week long event that you would come yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, we had the Colwood actually started the October sky festival yeah, back the October in, sky uh, Fest, right yeah. after the movie, mm-hmm. um, 99, 2000 timeframe and, um, did it for about a dozen years, but there's just so few people in Colwood that they really couldn't do it anymore. Plus, 
just getting in there was uh, was difficult. Uh, school buses from all over were getting in there, and if you've ever driven from Bluefield to Colwood, you know it's it's mm -hmm. it can be a kind of a scary ride if you're not used to that back and forth and coal trucks and dying towns and all that kind of thing. Sure. So um, so all, uh, so Colwood said they couldn't do it anymore, and I, I was okay with that, and because uh, I thought we had you know kind of done as much as we, we could. And then Beckley stepped up and said they wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, Scott Hill and company up there. And so we went on for uh, another, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years. And um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're not getting any younger, Roy Lee and Odell and me. So um, after uh, a, a couple of years ago, we said, well, let's just make this the last one and we can do some special events and that kind of thing. So that's where we are right now. Um, we have Rocket Boys, the musical at Theater mm -hmm. West Virginia. So we'll probably come up for, uh, for that during the summers. Okay. I like it. Well, Homer, you've had the career of, of a hundred men, you know, you've, you've done <laughs> many things. What's on the future? What's the rest of the year look like for you? What's the next couple you, you excited about any new upcoming projects or, What's on your radar? Well, I, you know, uh, I just signed a, another contract for another book. Uh, okay. Due in mid-January. Um, my wife's always asking me, where are you on on your book? And I go, well, I'm still on chapter one, but it's going to be a good one. <laughs> it's going to write itself. <laughs> so I've got to really start turning a crank here <laughs> on that book. Um, and uh, of course the COVID has slowed us all down a little bit, but um, I've been down to, uh, I went to the Virgin Islands in August. We have a house down there and I needed to go down and see why my cistern was leaking. And uh, so I did do some traveling and, uh, and then went back and then out to Montana a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so, but um, because of that, we're probably going to just hang around here in Huntsville, mostly uh, through after we get over uh, the COVID, which I predict mm -hmm. will be over, I don't know, November the 5th. Uh, but, uh, so <laughs> after they count in the mail-in ballots, right? Uh, so, um, uh, so and we just got a lot to do here, you know, really. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. awesome. Well, yeah. well, look, thank you so much, um, CJ. I don't know if you had any last thoughts here for us, but um, we, we can't thank you enough because I mean, we, we think about West Virginians, and, you know, you're um, one of the ones that everyone knows and comes to. A lot of folks, it uh, won't be a surprise to hear, but it, it was awesome for us to actually get a firsthand experience to hear from you. And, um, you know, thank you for all you do for the state. And, um, you know, we appreciate you coming on and speaking with us about, about West Virginia and all the other ventures that you've, you've accomplished. So thank you so much. Well, you're welcome, guys. It, it's, it's fun. You're, you're great interviewers, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be heard uh, back in the, in the old mountain state that I, that I dearly, dearly do love, and the people there are just, just wonderful, and I think our, our future, West Virginia's future, is absolutely unlimited. You know, people, um, they think about New York and California and all that kind of thing. And, uh, they go up and down, up and down, but we are, we just like steadily get better and better and better every year. And, uh, um, I just hope not too many people cram into that state. Yeah, we're waiting for them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll no, it, it's beautiful. I think we've got enough people there now and it's just great. And, uh, uh, again, lots of resources. We're kind of like the moon, you know, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're a good example of what's going to be like to live on the, on the moon, not 
the lack of atmosphere and all that. You know, yeah. but, uh, but the very fact that we're just kind of the resource for the entire country that really keeps the country going. They couldn't get along without West Virginia. If the United States mm -hmm. didn't have West Virginia, it would be nowhere. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the coal that made the United States to, to what it is, and now we got the natural gas. And, uh, and but you know what our best resource is? It's the people. And uh, the people of West Virginia are sent out around the country and the world, and uh, we kind of really pull the levers of power. And not a lot of people understand that, but we're 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 behind almost everything that's good in this world, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we've talked to some incredible people so far that are really trying to push West Virginia in a new direction and get the state, you know, back to kind of where it was. And uh, we're glad to put you on that list. Thank you for taking the time. And we will take you up on that offer. We'll see you in Garfield County and we'll, we'll dig up some bones too. <laughs> yeah, let's go find some dinosaurs. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> well, thank you, Homer. Take care. Okay, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Big thanks to Mason Jack, who produces our podcast. We couldn't do it without him. So thank you, Mason. And how cool is that, guys? A conversation with someone who is, I would say, nationally famous, certainly West Virginia famous, um, Homer Hickman. CJ, I think it was just cool for us. The more and more we do these episodes, it's you know, we meet these famous people and we have great conversations, but West Virginia just have a way of just talking and they're just fun people to, you know, almost just you feel like you're in a back room just talking with people. And, and Homer really came across as a humble, nice, certainly accomplished guy, but it was cool for us to connect with him and, and really just hear his story firsthand. Yeah, easy to talk to. And it always feels like West Virginians have something going on, right? Everybody knows Homer for his book and the movie that followed and of course he has a couple of novels out now but it's like man the guy is still working at 80 years old I mean he's still working hand in hand with the vice president of the United States trying to get people back to the moon and send robots to Mars I mean the guy just comes off as the most easygoing easy flowing guy to speak to and he's from the mountain state so it makes it even better like you said People from West Virginia do seem to have that tendency and that knack of just being easy to talk to, especially when you're talking about West Virginia. So, yeah, another another great conversation. Really enjoyed getting to meet Homer because that's kind of one of our childhood guys, right? Like that's somebody that you looked up to like this guy helped build rockets. Like, shoot, man, that's awesome. So really enjoyed our time with him and make sure to stick with us. New content out next week. That's going to do it for this edition of the Mountaineer Media Podcast.